Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity that you give us week in and week out to be able to gather as your people. We're thankful that you have given us your word in written form. We have it in multiple translations and multiple copies sitting in our church, in our homes, sometimes even in our cars, in our bags. In so many ways, Father, you make yourself available to us. You speak to us. And we have no excuse for not knowing more about you. So we thank you for these opportunities. We pray that we would avail ourselves of them. Help us, Father, to develop godly minds, minds that seek after your Son, Jesus Christ, and seek after the good of others. We pray for that to be possible even now as we uh, take this, uh, this new set of questions. And we pray, Lord, that the end result will be not just simply that we learn more stuff, but that we're changed and transformed to love you even more. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, folks, so we really do only have a few more sessions of Coffee and Questions. So, Tanya, was that a hand that I I saw? Okay, we're going to open up with Tanya. What you got for us? 2016 ESV version. Okay, I don't have my little white erase board, but um, ESV came out in 2001, and a very, very good solid translation uh, was updated in 2000. Seven, updated again in 2011. Every single time they made small changes, they looked and they said, oh, look at that, we can tweak that. All that was good. 2016, they also made a, a raft of changes. Most of them were pretty good. What was interesting was two things. Uh, one was a not good change that they made. In fact, we can take a look at it now. I think it's actually... Um, very bad, and it's in Genesis, Genesis chapter 3. Um, the other strange thing they said is that this was their final edition. They said they were never going to do it again. They were going to kind of just lock it in, seal it in, um, and this was their final revision. And setting aside the issue with the text I want us to look at briefly here, there were a lot of people who said, how can you just sit there and say it's never going to be modified again, that you've just kind of have arrived I think basically the editorial board was saying, you know, let's just settle this text and move on. I don't know if they have in mind coming out with the new English Standard Version or the revised English Standard. You know, uh, I hope they do it more like the King James. The King James went through multiple revisions from 1611 to 1759. But they have since reversed that idea of... Um, of the, of the text being sort of baked in and never to be touched. So they will probably have some revisions. But what is the, I think, really rather offensive text? Let's take a look at Genesis 3. Yeah, 2001, 2007, 2011, 2016. How do I know which one I have? Good question. If you look in the opening pages of your ESV Bibles, you will find it. And like at the very, 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 you know, you get that frontispiece, as it's called, that part that says Holy Bible, whatever, flip the page, and, you know, all the things that talks about the publisher and the dates and all that. So, like, for example, this one is one of my older Bibles. Um, So this one shows 2001, 2007. So this is only up through 2007. And um, you can look and, you know, you'll see all the others. But let's turn to Genesis 3, and um, I'm going to read to you from, uh, let's see, where do we want to go? So if you look at the curse, when God is pronouncing the curse against both Adam and then Eve, take a look at verse 16, 
And I'm going to read to you from this 2007, which was pretty much unaltered. It's the 2001, 2007, 2011. And uh, he says, to the woman, everybody have it? We're all good. To the woman, God said, uh, or I'm going to read it literally. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Okay. It's a lot of question as to, uh, Rod, uh, Rob's got uh, 2016 because you're looking it up online. Online always has the latest. So I'm going to ask you, Rob, to read it in just a moment. There's always a question whenever you translate in the ideal world, you never interpret. In the ideal world, when you translate, you take whatever the word is in the original language and you translate it perfectly into the receptor language. That is the, the language in which you're going into doesn't always work that way because you sometimes sit there and say, what did they mean? I'm not sure what word to translate it into because I don't know what they mean, which means you have to interpret the word. For centuries, if you look at other translations, uh, you'll see that they use the same language. Your desire shall be for your husband. Now, there's all sorts of questions of what that means, and we're not going to look at them right now. But, okay, anybody have New King James? Do you have New King James, perchance? Just that, yeah, your desire part. Right, because uh, it literally says your desire for your husband. Uh, and, and the shall be, you can, um, the, the New King James has a really, really good um, apparatus in which it, uh, the New American Standard does the same thing, or at least used to. I don't know if the, the new, the, by the way, the New American, the new, there was American, uh, New American Standard revision in 1995. Then recently they re-revised it. The recent re-revision is horrible. I mean, like, absolutely horrible. It, it's not like, oh, you know, okay, no, just horrible. So stick to the original um, or the 95 one. But, yeah, both of those, um, New American Standard and um, uh, New King James, have this apparatus where they will highlight words that are inserted. And you might say, what would you insert shall be? Because of the way Hebrew works and English works and so on. Um, when you say your desire for your husband, the way the word for is written in the Hebrew actually has that movement in it. So, you know, you sit and you say your desire for your husband shall be, because we don't have the ability to communicate that in English without adding words. So that, if you really wanted to look and, and you don't speak the original languages, it's always good having one of those two um, uh, English texts because they help you with things like that. So, good. All right, Rob, will you read us the 2016 version of Genesis uh, 3.16? Your desire shall be contrary to your husband. Or the, the note says what? Or shall be toward. So let's write these up here because this is where it gets fun. So we've got Genesis 3, right? It's 16, where he said, right? And we have desire for in all these versions here and New King James and others all seem to be similar and now in 2016 desire shall be contrary to okay contrary to but in the footnote it puts that as desire toward. And that's 
a very interesting, I don't know of any translation that actually has the word desire toward, but it's in the marginal note. That's actually the better translation. You might say, how do you go from toward to contrary and so on, right? Well, let's look at someplace else where this comes up. Genesis, next chapter, 4. It comes up twice. And these are the only two, the only two places, Genesis 3 and 4, where this happens. Uh, let's see, where does he kill his brother? Ah, here we go. Uh, 4, 8. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Now, that's 2007, which is the same as all the others. Rob, you're my 2016 man. It's probably d- d- no change, probably. Yeah, 4-8. Cain rose up against his brother. What does it say? No, I'm talking about like, okay. No, 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 we're not there yet. No, no, it's, it's, it's 8. It's eight. When they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother. Okay, it's the same. All right. What's interesting is that the Hebrew word is the same word. Rose up. Yeah, you just hold on to that. Just hold on to that. Now, you were talking about the previous verse. And I wanted to get to that. Uh, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching on the door. Its desire is for you. But I bet you that one says, contrary to you, but you must rule over it. So here you have three places with the same Hebrew word with one place that rose up where there doesn't seem to be any controversy. So the Hebrew word actually means to move toward. That's why this is, while it's bad English, it doesn't sound all that desire. Desire shall be toward your husband. You don't think of a desire toward. You think of a desire for or a desire against, not toward. But that's actually what the word means, toward. And so this idea that he, he, he went toward him, but not in a... So in Hebrew, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's locative. Like, I use toward to mean I'm walking toward the car. Here, it's a direction of the impulse of what he wanted to do. And so the idea of rose up is translated here as he went toward and against him. So there can have this idea of against right? Toward, he went toward him in a relationship, but in, a, in an aggressive, negative, adversarial way, right? And that's an interpretation of the word, because clearly it says he killed him, so the guy's, okay, well, moving toward was to rose up to kill him. Oh, and then you get the translations, rose up. When you get to uh, Genesis 3, and the wife's desire, your desire shall be toward in some way, grabbing a hold of your husband, the question is, is it because you want to grab a hold and submit to it, or do you want to take it for yourself and you want that position? That's a matter of interpretation where the, the, it's, not in the, it's not in the Hebrew word. The Hebrew word can go either way. And so it can be for or it can be contrary in, uh, in, in terms of it um, lexically can be either one of those. Um, you then have to interpret it. And that's for the pastors and for the theologians. Really, a translation should try to leave it as much as possible. But it couldn't just leave it at toward. And historically, the word has been for. And here, the so in one sense, you're going to say, well, they already made an interpretation. And that is true. Because there's just no really good English way of saying this. I think, personally, the traditional translation is correct. 
And even if you leave it as four, you can still interpret it as being four in a negative sense. Uh, if I were preaching on this, I would, I would describe that the minute you say contrary to, you've locked it into one interpretation only. There's no way of saying that this could be. If, if you felt that it really was uh, her desires for her husband to now submit to him and to now, you can't get that from that in English. You can here. You can also even get this idea here, and I can explain it in the text. Does that make sense? That's why I think that's a horrible translation and got a lot of pushback. Why would they do that? ESV has done such a good job, generally speaking. ESV is not the perfect translation by any means, and you, you can, you can um, grade a translation on a number of different things like uh, accuracy, um, readability, uh, grade level. You know, there's just a lot of different ways you can grade. I can probably pick all, any one of those different things and others, literary qualities, and always find some other Bible, like, uh, like literary. You want the most literary Bible? The Revised English Bible. It's literary. You, know, you want readability? Not even the NIV. You can go to the Good News Translation. Accuracy? Sometimes the NAS and the New King James edge out the ESV. What the ESV is so good at is that while it doesn't get A pluses across the board, it gets A minuses or at the very worst B pluses, whereas all the others might do C, C, A, you know, and all that. It's generally the best generally across the board. They've done so good generally in translating. Why would they do this? It's a sad story. Um, any of you familiar with the idea of relationship between men and women? There's been a battle in the church for some time, and there's two different viewpoints called egalitarianism and complementarianism. You've heard those. Egalitarianism is what our culture is pushing today, that there's complete equality between men and women to the extent that there's no distinction made between men and women. They are exactly alike, and we're hearing that, you know, today. Uh, it's the, the uh, in, in logic, you know, when you want to get into a debate, you can do a, a strategy called reductio ad absurdum. You produce to the, to the most absurd. We're there now with the whole trans thing. You know, men can have babies and periods and all that other stuff. That is actually the end result of egalitarianism. That's where you get to when you're in that extreme position. Complementarianism says men and women are different, but in God's design, they complement one another. It's because of sin that there's butting of heads between the two sexes. And yes, sexes, not genders. Gender is a, uh, as you've heard me say many times, a grammatical term only. There's masculine, neuter, and feminine, and it is assigned, which is why those folks who want to, um, to uh, subvert the biblical model are using the language of gender because we all understand that gender is a sign and therefore they can say they can assign to themselves their gender. Not their sex. cannot be assigned. But anyway, um, the two sexes are in fact complementary. Different gifts, different general uh, uh, ways of looking at the world and behavior and likes and all that stuff, but they were meant to complement one another. And there was, a, there was a group called the Biblical Council, and it's a handful of a name, or a mouthful of a name, Biblical Council of Manhood and Womanhood, started in the 80s, that was theologians and pastors, uh, evangelical, you know, all stripes, getting together and writing statements and putting out seminars, and at one time I think they had a, uh, a journal, and, and this is the day before podcasts, if, and all that kind of, if they, if they were, they're still around, but if they were really as active as they were in the 80s and 90s, they probably would be podcasting. Maybe they are, I don't know, maybe one of you has found it. I just don't listen to most of that, but um, 
There has been a push in that group of complementarianism. Some of you ladies might actually run into this, especially if you homeschool uh, or if you're more active in that world. There's been a push. Um, how can I say it's not stepping on too many toes? We agree on the complementarian thing, but there's been a, a, a push to get that to an excessive point, even to the point of what the outside world sometimes calls patriarchy. It's been entering into aspects of the conservative church. You could go to a, some homeschool co-op, and I don't want to step on any toes, but you know, the ladies are all wearing the exact same jumpers, and they got their little short haircuts, and they walk three steps behind, behind their husband, and they don't talk unless they're spoken to, and all that kind of stuff. And that's going way too far. Somehow that group managed to push these guys to change that text to kind of show this idea that everything that's happening today is because sin pushed women to be against men. And while I think an argument can be made by that, I don't think we should ever have changed that text. So, all right. 2016, anything more? Oh, I did, did I? I can't remember what I did yesterday, let alone <laughs> at the beginning of that two and a half months ago. So, uh, well, hopefully that's been of some use. So, questions about anything we just said or, or clarification? Nope. All good? All right. I think we have time for one more. Andrew, you, you look like you were itching to say something. Okay, he's just listening. Anybody else? Paula. Very good question. Yeah, um, you may or may not have your bulletin in front of you, but uh, we open with this um, series of uh, actually three distinct elements in the worship service. And um, I don't know that we lay them all out because I think we just ran out of room, but one of them should be called the votum. I don't think we call it that. Yeah, so it's Trinitarian confession. Uh, it should be votum and then salutation. Um, there, those um, three things that we do, we are gathered in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, which was traditional in, in uh, Christian worship to remind people this is Trinitarian worship, so that's the Trinitarian confession part. Uh, this distinguish, distinguishes us from Judaism and, you know, and, and all sorts of other things. Um, it's amazing how in evangelicalism today there's been a decrease even in the idea of Christ. Christ is a person we mention only at the end of our prayers, in Jesus' name, because we've been trained to do that like a formula. But how much, uh, how little Christocentricity there actually is. So that's the first, first part. And then the votum, uh, or the, the um, uh, basically it, it's, it's, it's um, a, a micro prayer. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. That was something that Calvin introduced, which was essentially... Um, uh, going up to God and requesting his help, recognizing that even this we can't do, worship and, uh, in, in, um, apart from God's enabling. So those two technically don't have to be done by a minister. But in the OPC, the next part, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord, we change those between several texts, you know. That's the salutation, and the salutation, just like the benediction, salutation is just Latin, it means hi, it's the greeting, just literally means the greeting. Benediction, the blessing. And um, in the PCA, when we used to be a PCA church, uh, the benediction, you know, when the ironic, uh, uh, not ironic, when the ironic priest used to come out and bless the people, that kind of thing, and it's the same uh, thing there. The benediction's not a prayer, it's a blessing, God blessing, using, you know, the minister uses God's words to bless you. Uh, as you go out. That was something the minister can only do. 
the OPC uh, has also added that the salutation is also something the minister can also do because, again, it's on the same order, God greeting his people. And then the idea that uh, uh, in the same way that a minister is the one who ordinarily would preach <clears throat> because he's been uh, called to be the one who opens up God's word and applies it, it's seen in that exact same way, that the salutation and benediction, God's word being applied to God's people. And so a minister ordinarily should do it. I mean, you know, if Brandon as our intern or somebody else did it, would it be the end of the world? It probably The church would probably not crumble and so on. But for doing things in decent, decency and good order. So we want to we maintain that. Does that help? Okay. All right. Uh, maybe a really short question. A really, really short one. I mean, the question could be long, but with a short answer. <laughs> Timothy. Yeah, so Coptic Christians are almost virtually all... Um, uh, located in Egypt. Uh, you can go a little further uh, south, and they do start to press in sometimes into the Sudan, but for the most part, it's almost essentially all in Egypt. Um, Coptic Christianity looks like uh, Eastern Orthodoxy. You know, you have major groups, uh, Protestantism, Roman Catholicism, uh, and Orthodoxy or Eastern Orthodoxy, uh, usually Russian, Greek, Ukrainian Orthodoxy. You know, we've been hearing a lot about that. Coptics look a lot like Orthodox, and you're going to think at first that perhaps they are uh, the same as just, because there are Orthodox folks in, um, in Egypt, and you might think they are, they are, but they're not. They're actually the oldest group going all the way back. Unfortunately, um, we have some disagreements with them, and especially has to do with Arianism, <laughs> if that means anything, um, and the nature of Christ and the two natures, and, and uh, they... They had a group that, so Arianism, uh, about the 4th century, uh, when it finally peaked, it's been around for a while, but basically looks at Jesus and sees him as created at some point. And with different flavors, uh, you know, Jehovah's Witnesses today would, would say Jesus is not God, right? That kind of thing. Uh, Arianism can have different flavors. Uh, he never became God. He had a beginning, he was born, and, and, but became God, you know, that kind of thing. and all. So, so it depends on the flavor. That was pushed back. Um, uh, that's where we get the, uh, the Nicene Creed and the Constantinopolitan Creed, which uh, really became in, okay, well, we won't give you all that. But the Nicene Creed, which was finally finished uh, in Constantinople, is the one that we have. All that to squash this idea, you know, the second person of Trinity has always been God, who's always been around, and so on. So they had some Arianism in them. For the most part, that's been knocked out, thankfully, but there still are little elements of that even today in Coptic Christianity where they really all hold to that we would disagree with is Nestorianism, and that's the idea that, that uh, Jesus is not uh, one person, two natures, which is what the rest of the church argued. He's one person with a fully human and a fully divine nature. They kind of hold to him being two persons, and that's kind of weird. Uh, but there's a divine person and there's a human person. And uh, they, they work in concert. So that's probably by far the biggest um, difference. And that actually has kept them out of the, the broader church in that regard. Does that help? Okay. I think we're going to have to quit, guys. So very good session, good questions. Um, we're going to only have three more of these, I think. Right? So... Get them all together, and let's uh, bring them next week. You are the ones who set the stage. So um, since I've got you for just a minute, I know 
Scott's going to be making these announcements later, but just be thinking ahead. We will be going back to our regular Sunday school in September. Um, you know, again, all ages and, you know, adults and all that other stuff. We'll go back in this class, the adult class, to using, uh, to, uh, to continue our look at the Westminster Shorter Catechism. So for just a few more weeks, you get to set the agenda before that happens. So, all right, let me, let me close us with prayer. Father in heaven, as we were um, saying, even in our opening prayer, we are so thankful that we have your word in so many different forms and translations. And even when we can nitpick here and there, uh, these things are not unimportant. This is your word that we're talking about. But we thank you that we have these multiple translations. We thank you that you've given us teachers, uh, folks who understand the Hebrew and the Greek and who can help us unpack it. And we're thankful that those translations are generally reliable and that uh, the true story and the, uh, the full story of who your son is and what he's done for us uh, is absolutely clear to whoever would, uh, would read it and believe it. We pray, Lord, that we would have their, uh, the, the real confidence in our Bibles, that we would long to read them, that we would long to hear you speak to us, and, and that it would change and shape us. And we pray this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.